0: Okay, just a reminder on, on announcements, mostly the, ch- the church schedule, that we will be having a special Christmas Eve, I mean, not Christmas Eve, but Christmas service on the Sunday before Christmas. And we will have uh, the Lord's table that Sunday as well, so plan plan for that. There will not be a service on Christmas Day, not that night, and, but there will be a service on New Year's night. I don't know what football game I'm going to be competing with, but that's why they invented DVRs, okay? So you just don't pay attention to it afterwards and go home and watch it like it's live rather than Memorex. So then that takes us through the end of the year. Now, this Saturday morning, for those of you who are here and those of you who are visitors and might not have this on your calendar... We have our men's prayer breakfast at 7.30 on Saturday morning. So uh, you might want to come uh, for the men's prayer breakfast. That's a great time. And also invite some of the other men in the church that you know that may not be coming. So it's a good time. Of uh, The food is great, and we fellowship around the Word, and that encourages all of us. It's a great encouragement to me whenever I hear of of men who are reading through the Scriptures and uh, growing in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God." I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open the word tonight, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can be spiritually prepared to study the word, to focus on uh, this very important uh, teaching that we have in the scripture related to humility and how that fits within our Uh, framework for handling adversity and suffering and how in turn that fits within the whole uh, dynamic of satan's rebellion the angelic conflict and spiritual warfare so after a few moments of silent prayer then i will open in prayer let's pray Father, we are so grateful that we have cleansing from sin, that we have forgiveness, that that forgiveness is not based on our emotions, our remorse, our repentance. It's based on simply confessing sin, admitting, acknowledging our sin to you, because it is based on the death of Christ on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. And therefore, sin is no longer the issue. And so when we sin, it breaks our fellowship, but that is immediately restored so that we can continue to enjoy our our rapport and relationship with you, and we can live lives of service and worship to you. Now, Father, as we study tonight, there are so many important things that we have to touch on. We pray that you would help us to see objectively into our own lives through the mirror of your word, and that God the Holy Spirit would expose the areas where we need to change and mature, and that we would be responsive to that uh, His ministry. and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First Peter chapter 5. And we will get at least into verse 7 and 8. We may get a little bit further, but it opens up an important window of biblical teaching related to uh, the relationship between Satan, spiritual warfare, and suffering. And so we'll see some interesting connections as we get into a little further down into verse uh, verse 8 and 9. It's... Uh, It's very significant and interestingly parallel to James in James chapter 4 verses 7 and following. So tonight we're going to continue this look at humility. We're going to review a little bit for a couple of reasons. Last question. Last week we covered it, but we've been so spotty the last month or two with changes in the Tuesday night schedule and Thursday night schedule. It's good to go through the review and to think about this. And coming to verse 7, we realize we often memorize this verse in isolation, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. But there's a context, and the context tells you that casting all our care upon him is how we demonstrate and learn humility. And that's what we get by looking at it in terms of verse 6. So very important. We've seen that a major theme in this section and in Peter throughout because those to whom he is writing are getting ready to face adversity. They are going to face persecution on an individual level and to some degree at this early stage, just opposition and hostility from a pagan culture. And as well, because they're Jewish background believers, it's going to come out of their friends and family and their and their the Jewish background. Now, this isn't anything like what will come about when they get into the second century and there's some uh, significant empire-wide persecutions. But it applies. It applies to us as well today as we face a cir- circumstances in our culture where there is a growing... Uh, opposition to Christianity, growing hostility to Christianity, especially on college campuses. And you have many places where, where there, is, uh, there are policies that are put in place to shut down Christians. I was reading just this morning about a university in Colorado that will not allow the Christians to have a student organization because they want to restrict the leadership to only those who are Christians, And so that is being taken to court. Uh, It's absurd to think that you can have a uh, Christian organization and not have Christians as those in charge, but that is the way of the world. Also, there's a situation that occurred in a university up north where students were on a public sidewalk. It's a public taxpayer university, and they're passing out copies of that horrible, evil Propaganda called the United States Constitution. And they ended up getting arrested and put in jail. Now, that has a good ending because um, one of the legal organizations that fights for First Amendment rights and religious freedom uh, was on the ball, and they brought their, uh, their... Uh, lawyers to bear on the university and they ended up changing their policy and that's what usually happens Uh, those who are in charge of universities are woefully ignorant of constitutional freedoms and the first amendment and they think they can adopt policies in their on their campuses that that restrict this in areas where they cannot restrict it so we are under under attack And we, just as much as those to whom Peter's writing, must be spiritually prepared. And to do that, we have to have humility. Now, Peter is addressing the leadership, and he tells them that they need to have humility. He addresses the congregation that they need to have humility because they're going to face this persecution, and you will not succeed spiritually in handling adversity of any kind in life If you haven't developed humility, and as we've studied, the essence of humility is submission to to the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience to Scripture, and that means internalizing the Scripture and doing what Scripture says to do. And the emphasis for leadership is servant leadership, as we've seen many times, and it's based on humility which is not this idea of being a doormat and everybody just takes advantage of you, but it's the idea of being submissive to authority over you and the authority over us as believers is God. Moses is identified in the Old Testament as the meekest is how it's translated. It's the most humble man on the earth and he certainly wasn't a doormat to the three million Jews he was shepherding through the wilderness. He had to be very strong and very tough at times, that doesn't mean he was arrogant. Often people who are tough and know what they want and what the way things should be are are said by those who uh, attack them as being arrogant, and that's not arrogance at all. And uh, this applies to... Any of us in any situation, it applies to men as leaders in marriage, it applies to parents and leadership in the home, it applies to those who are in school, whether you're in student leadership or you are a teacher or faculty or administrator you exercise leadership and it needs to be servant leadership the world does not understand it when you act with good manners and grace orientation and kindness and goodness even to your enemies they will they will ridicule you and abuse you because of it because it doesn't fit their pattern and we see examples of that even today our vice president who i believe is a man of tremendous biblical true biblical humility shows deference and respect to the president all of the time, and it just drives the people who hate the president nuts because they want him to be nasty or this or that. The other thing, he also will recognize and honor uh, those who are on from the other side of the aisle when they are in the audience, and he gets criticized for that. But he is a solid believer in the Lord, and he exercises a servant leadership that is very gracious to those uh, around him, whether he agrees with them or not. And that used to be just known as someone with good manners. And that was one of the reasons that etiquette was developed, is to teach a code of conduct for people, whether they were a believer or unbeliever, to restrain the self-centeredness of our hum- what they would call our human nature, what we would identify as the, the sin nature. Now, when we talk about humility, I've used this uh, a definition from the concise Oxford English Dictionary that humble means to show a low estimate of one's own importance. It, they also identified it as of low rank. The Bible does use the term in that sense as well, or of modest pretensions or dimensions. As a verb, it means, according to o, the concise OED, uh, lower in dignity or importance. That misses the point of the biblical term and the biblical but see the biblical usage of the term was contrary to the greco Roman use of the term in the culture for for christians it 's a virtue uh, for those in the greco Roman empire it was a vice because if you weren 't self promoting if you didn 't promote yourself, nobody else would you needed to be very very uh, very proud and very arrogant and very assertive of who you are and we see this today you have classes that you can take or you can go to uh, psychology self-help groups and get assertiveness training and that really runs counter to the concept of biblical uh, biblical humility and the problem is we're all born arrogant this is a diagram we use a lot for for uh, the sin nature and at the very heart of our sin nature which doesn't go away just because we're saved is arrogance it is total self-absorption and this is the default position whenever you sin you default to arrogance now in in pseudo humility of the of the sin nature you can have a self-effacing uh, attitude. You can say things that indicate that you don't think so highly of yourself, but it all comes from arrogance. It all comes from this, uh, this sin nature, and this is the problem that we always have. Remember what Paul said in Romans? In Romans chapter 6, he clearly states that the power of the sin nature isn't broken until, as a believer, at the instant of salvation, we're identified with Christ in his death burial and resurrection and the sin nature is is then crucified it's not it's not removed but its power is is broken what that means is that prior to the time you were saved you only had one nature and that was a human sin nature that was it that means you either operated from your area of strength and you did you were moral just like the Pharisees were moral you were good, relatively speaking, but it came from the arrogance of your sin nature. And so often what you find is people who are operating in their human good and morality. And remember, there's we want people to be moral. You don't want a nation of people who are immoral. John Adams said that the Constitution was written for a moral people. You're not going to go anywhere with an immoral people. But, in it just because it's moral doesn't mean it is spiritual, so you have a trend on one side of your sin nature towards asceticism and legalism and I was having a discussion with someone the other day, and I pointed out that that you know one of the problems we had for many of us we grew up in a great time when we were reacting to legalism in the church, and there was a lot of legalism to react to, but we I think looking back on it, we can say that a mistake was made. And the reason a mistake was made is because we grew up, those of us, nearly everybody here is either just a little bit ahead of the baby boom curve or part of the baby boom generation. And the problem with the baby boom generation is that they were characterized by antinomianism by rebellion against authority and lawlessness. And if you don't believe that, what we're seeing in our country today is the fruit of the root of the orientation of the baby boom generation. And so we were teaching grace orientation and an opposition to legalism at the time when the big danger was this antinomianism. And see, in a lot of ways in Christian circles, and I've been around a lot of different Christians, legalism is the idea that when we're moral or virtuous, that somehow that impresses God. That's what legalism is. But there's nothing wrong with sinners or Christians being moral and virtuous. We need to be that way. That's part of the code of conduct for the royal family of God. We're to live a righteous life. And that's what's seen in, in the scripture. But too often that was portrayed. Sometimes, sometimes it was legalistic. But but we we mixed up the fact that virtue done to impress God is legalism. But virtue done for virtue's sake is not legalism. It's good morality. It's the stability of a home. It's the stability of a family. It's the stability of a of, of a nation. But when it is made to be spiritually significant, it leads to moral degeneracy, as we see with the the, the, uh, Pharisees. Now, when you go to the other extreme, you get the licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism. And this is what falls out when you're in a culture that is glorifying arrogance and self-absorption. Because we want to do what we want to do, the way we want to do it, and when we want to do it. And, and and that's antinomianism, and you see antinomianism now on college campuses where they want to flaunt the, flaunt the Constitution, that's antinomianism. You see antinomianism in uh, political parties and political leaders. They don't want to submit to the Constitution. They swear an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States, and they haven't read it in years, and they don't understand what it says, and they really don't care. I read about one congressman yesterday that said that he would love to pass laws to restrict uh, freedom of speech. He just can't get around the First Amendment. And there are a lot of people in this country who, if they could get away with it, they would do it. They do not understand freedom anymore. And uh, and for, to really, uh, truly understand freedom, you have to have a sense of humility, genuine humility, not a pseudo humility. So they operate on these arrogant skills, which begin with the orientation of the sin nature, self-absorption, and then because we are so self-absorbed, we indulge ourselves. We do what we want to do when we want to do it, and the result has all kinds of horrible consequences in our lives, but we justify it. We come up with all kinds of rationales as to why it's it's not bad, it's really good, and this is part of self-deception. And so, what we are doing is making ourselves the ultimate determiner of right and wrong that means we're acting like God. That's what Satan tempted Eve with. If you eat from the fruit, you'll be like God, and we want to be like God. We want to be the source of determining what is right and what is wrong in our lives so it's self deification and we just get in this this endless cycle. So, as we have studied in the past, you get into this section in five five through five seven. Which focuses on uh, basic commands to submit yourself, and three times we have this command in first Peter five five submit yourselves it's followed by what looks like a command in English, and it's an it, it's a good translation but in the in the Greek it's not a command it's a participle, but because of the way grammar in Greek works, that participle picks up that uh, imperatival sense from the imperative, so it's an imperative. Also, it has that sense, and then be clothed with humility, and so we go through that, and we saw that it explains this is because there's a principle that comes out of Proverbs three thirty four, that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the to the arrogant. And then it ends with this challenge, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now that verse is echoed in James chapter four. I'm James was written before first Peter. So Peter is echoing James, and it's the contexts are almost identical. The, the context of the people that they are writing to. James is writing to Jewish background believers who are in the uh, diaspora, and so is Peter. And they're both addressing people who are going to be going through adversity and testing, and both of them are followed by commands in relationship with, to Satan, to resist the devil and he will flee from you is what James says. And then Peter expands on that by talking about being sober and vigilant, uh, because your adversary literally your enemy the adversary devil means adversary so your enemy the adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour resist him he's saying the same thing slightly different way but uses the same same vocabulary so we have these uh these three commands to humble ourselves Uh, are to submit ourselves, to be submissive, to be clothed with humility, which uses an imagery of a slave putting on a slave apron. So he identified that he was a slave and not a free Freeman. And so this meant that, that, uh, you're, you're putting yourself in a subservient position to someone in authority. And that always seems to be what we find out with the meaning of humility. It's subordinating ourselves, uh, to someone has an authority. And so it's a mental attitude thing. It's it's true humility is this sort of sort of mental attitude. And the reason that's given is that quote from Proverbs 3, 34. And then we have the conclusion that'll come up and we'll get to tonight in verses six, uh, six and seven. And we've seen that this idea of submission, who potasso just runs all the way through Peter and each class of people that he's talking to has to submit. Submit to political leaders, submit to employers or slaves, ma- sub- submit to masters, uh, wives submit to husbands, uh, children, parents. Uh, this is part of making any organization of sinners work, is there has to be genuine humility or it falls, uh, falls apart. Now the term that comes up is a term that we find in the Old Testament quote from Proverbs three thirty-five, and I just want to remind you of this. The root is this first part of this word, tapina. Now you can change the ending a couple of different ways with the os. It's a noun. With a, if you have tapinao, it's a verb. If you have frasune, that has to do with developing a certain kind of characteristic or quality. Which is a quality of humility, but that's the word group, and this wasn't a virtue this wasn't a virtue in in the greco Roman world uh, this it's connected to the mentality of a slave or an extremely poor person because the root has this idea of being in a low position you 're a nobody, and I pointed out that this is exactly the mentality that that the Lord Jesus Christ said needed to characterize the apostles. If they're going to have an inheritance in the kingdom, they have to not be asserting their own authority and their own position in this kind of, of arrogant manner. So let me just review a couple of things before we go any further, that humility is the opposite of arrogance. Humility is the opposite of arrogance. That means that at any given moment, we're either operating on arrogance or we're operating on humility. And often arrogance is cloaked in a pseudo humility. And many people are are just experts at cloaking their arrogance in some form of pseudo humility. Arrogance focuses on the self. It always has the end game of some sort of self-benefit in mind. It is always about what I'm going to eventually get out of it and how I am going to be promoted. Whereas genuine humility, biblical humi- humility as a spiritual virtue is always oriented towards submission to God, and God is the one who gets the glory, not me. It's not about my position, my wisdom, my skill. It's not about how much money I make or how uh, many promotions or recognitions I get or any of those things. It's all about how much uh, recognition goes to the Lord. That's the difference between uh, arrogance and biblical uh, humility. We have the sin nature and arrogant skills are our default position. Whenever we sin and we're out of fellowship, we always default to an arrogance at the core of our sin nature and arrogance mentality. Now, what arrogance does is it blinds us. Arrogance blinds us because when we're operating on arrogance, we're operating on a false view of reality. Now, just think about that. You are tempted to do something, and you know that you're going to just get hammered or you run the risk of getting hammered if you get caught doing that sin. But you convince yourself that nobody's watching so it's really okay and you can get away with it. And so what you have done is that you have created a a fantasy in your mind that you can sin and it has no consequences whatsoever in the universe or in your life. And so that is blinding yourself to reality. And we are enslaved to that arrogance, and it binds us in, a, in our own opinions and actions so that we're convinced of our own rectitude. Now, we can't, if that's true, we can't be objective. And we're going to react. And if somebody points out something in a legitimate way, saying you know, you're a little bit grumpy today you're out of sorts you're uh, not acting like you normally do whatever it is they point out this flaw and we immediately get defensive see that self-attitude of defense is exactly what arrogance promotes because arrogance is always right in humility we seek the truth In humility, we're willing to weigh whatever is said to see what value there might be in it that we may learn from it and grow closer to Christ in our character. Humility always seeks truth even if it makes us uncomfortable, even when it's not complimentary because we know that God is working in our lives to make us like Christ. So because arrogance blinds us and we live in a fantasy world, arrogance destroys teachability. We can't learn. We're not going to learn from somebody. And I've seen this a lot. You have too as you were growing up you always ran into people who thought they knew more than the teachers who thought they knew more than anybody else maybe you were in the military and there was one or two guys that came in as you were going through a basic training and they thought they knew more than the drill instructor and they quickly were abused of that idea but that is what happens in fact that boot camp Basic training is a good example because one of the things that has to happen is that the drill instructor has to destroy that arrogance, that self-reliance in somebody so that they learn to be obedient instantly whenever an order is given because eventually it may be in a situation that is life and death and, and nanoseconds manner, and you're not going to discuss it or, or argue or question it. You're just going to bark an order and you want an instantaneous response in a combat situation. Uh, If somebody is arrogant and they think they know more than their uh, commanding officer or sergeant, then uh, they're going to create problems. Arrogance always uh, creates divisiveness. So if you're arrogant, you can't learn anything. You're not going to be teachable. You're going to question everything. And humility, therefore, is necessary to learn it's necessary to grow, and it's necessary to maturity. Arrogance, love is not arrogant. Paul says that in 1 first, uh, first Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, as he describes the characteristics of love. So therefore, an arrogant person cannot fully love. They must have humility and see if you think back to the spiritual skills that we've taught many many times we have one category called grace orientation and as part of grace orientation a person has to be humble grace orientation is the foundation to be being able to not only love but to be loved to truly understand what it is to be loved and to love uh, uh, someone else and so when we're grace when we're not grace oriented we're, not, we're operating on, on arrogance. But when we're grace-oriented, we're humble. So therefore, we're teachable. And we can learn and we can grow. And we can begin to develop a genuine capacity to love others. If arrogance is blinding and enslaves us, then arrogance is also self-delusional. We delude ourselves. And you can't love somebody if you're deluded. Because basically, the psychological word for it is you're neurotic. And the more neurotic you get, we're all, according to that, we're all neurotic when we're living on our sin nature because it's inherently a fantasy. But um, when we're in this kind of self-delusion, it always leads to foolish and self-destructive decisions. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about, is it compares and contrasts the fool with the wise. And last time I talked about four different aspects or qualities or four different kinds of fools that are described in, in Proverbs. Arrogance is always going to be characterized by disobedience to authority, and humility will be characterized by obedience. But it's therefore only on the basis of genuine biblical humility, which we can't generate on our own. Because if you're an unbeliever and you're operating on your sin nature, genuine humility is totally foreign to the sin nature. If you're a believer and you're living on the basis of your sin nature, the same problem. You, we have to be walking by the Spirit, and it's only that God the Holy Spirit can produce that. And you say, well, where does it list humility in the list of the fruit of the Spirit? Well, in the first one, love, because you can't be arrogant if you are going to love. So God the Holy Spirit produces love, and love is inherent, is based on, on humility. So <clears throat> with that, we see the importance of this. It is foundational to our whole relationship with God and it's produced through our, at the beginning of our Christian life, just through the beginning stages and steps as God the Holy Spirit begins to work through that now this principle is quoted from Proverbs 3, 34 and I use these different translations when we went through this, that in the in the quote that we have here, it reads God resists the proud but in the original in the Hebrew, it's more along the lines of God scorns the scornful or he scoffs at the scoffers. But it has the same idea. God is opposed to the arrogant. And that's how it was translated by the rabbis when they translated the Septuagint. And it's the Septuagint that's quoted in in Peter. But he gives, gives grace to the humble. So this whole idea of humility doesn't pop up with Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. You find it all through the Old Testament. In fact, there's a significant passage that talks about humility without using that term, and it's found in Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51 is what's called, I don't know why they do this, a penitential psalm. It goes back to the original meaning of the word. It is when David is confessing his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his conspiracy to have her husband Uriah murdered after uh, it was discovered that she was pregnant. And he is coming before God, and in Psalm 51, he is expressing his attitude he is expressing his mentality and this is really important and i don't think i've ever cranked my way through this verse for people and sometimes we hit this verse and we wonder well what's really going on uh, inside of this verse and it is it reads the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a, and then there's this, and it, see how it's set off? You don't have a, an M dash here at the end. You just have a comma. But this phrase, a broken and contrite heart, is an appositional phrase to broken spirit. That means it's explaining what that what that means, to have a broken spirit. And it r- uses the same word in, in Hebrew, shavar. It repeats it here. So we understand that it is a broken and a contrite heart. So heart here is used as a synonym for the immaterial part of our nature, specifically our our mentality, our attitude. And that's what humility is. It is a mental attitude. So heart here is not talking about an emotion. Rarely does it have that connotation in the Old Testament. Uh, it has the idea of the center of our thinking and the center of our soul, and so it focuses on how we are thinking. And so we have to think as it, it means, literally the word means to break something or to break it into pieces. And so this idea of breaking something into pieces really expresses the idea of, of shattering Your arrogance, your self absorption, just breaking it down. And this is better understood when you look at this first uh, phrase, the sacrifices of God, it has a context. The context is in verse 16. As David prays, he says to God, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices, and then, so first he says, God, you don't want a sacrifice. And we'll look at that in just a second. What he means is a literal ritual sacrifice. What you want, the true sacrifice, is a broken spirit. Now, let's break this down. When he uses, he used two key terms here. He uses the word sacrifice, which is the word zibach which is the general word for sacrifice, but it is often used of the peace offering. Now, if you remember, as I've taught as we've gone through the sacrifices on Tuesday night recently in our series on worship, is that a peace offering comes down the road. First, you have to have a a, a reparation or a sin offering. And that's where forgiveness occurs. And then what, the next thing that comes along is going to be the burnt offering. That's what's mentioned second here is the ola. But you don't give a burnt offering until first you've had the sin, sin offering or the reparation offering, which is where where uh, you would have forgiveness or cleansing of sin take place. So what what David says here is you don't desire a peace offering. Or else I would give it. You don't delight in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, there's something that goes with that. See, if you just come, and this was a problem in Israel for many years. It's a problem of the church today. We go through the motions. We go through the forms. It's called formalism. And they would just bring the sacrifice because that's what the Scripture said to do. But there's a mentality that was supposed to go with the sacrifice, And that's why in many places God says, I don't want your sacrifices and offerings. I want you to change your your thinking. And, And it's the thought. So in that sense, if we are performing the ritual, there's nothing wrong with performing the ritual. That's not what's wrong. What's wrong is there's not the proper mentality with it. Same thing can happen today when we come to church. We just come because it's habit. And we haven't really done the prior spiritual preparation to make sure when we're coming, we're coming with the right mental attitude and the right reason. It happens at the Lord's table. There is a mentality. We talk about this all the time. There is a mental attitude there, and it's submission to God. That's what worship is. It is submission to God. And if there's no humility, you can't submit to God. So what David is getting at here is, you don't ju- God, you don't just want the form. You want the mental attitude that's supposed to be the basis for bringing the sacrifice. And that is a, a, broken, uh, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Now, what these words describe is a mentality of submission. The arrogance has been broken the rebellion has been crushed. The rebellion from our sin nature is crushed. And now the sinner is submitting to the authority of God. That's obedience. We talked about this going back to, to uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses five, uh, 5 through 11. And in the midst of that, Paul says that the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, the death of the cross. So that humility is exhibited by submission to authority. And this has been a, it, the issue of authority has run its course through all of this epistle. And it is inherent to the big idea that is in this epistle, and that is how these believers have to handle the adversity and the suffering that is coming down the road for them. And if they are not prepared through genuine biblical humility, they will fail the test of persecution, the test of opposition, the test of adversity. And so what God wants is a uh, submissive mindset, a mindset that is not arrogant, but one that is submitted uh, to him. The phrase sacrifices of god mean sacrifices for god that is the sacrifices that uh are worthy of god and so he says this is what they are and then at the end he said these that is these sacrifices the broken and contrite heart the submissive mindset to god these you will not despise and this is an interesting uh figure of speech because what he is saying is the opposite. It is, he's not saying God you, that God would despise. He's saying you will not despise. In other words, you will accept it and rejoice over it. And so it is sometimes referred to as understatement. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as litotes, where you say sort of the uh, uh, this understatement. You're saying, well, your name won't be blotted out of the book of life, which... What you're really saying is, it's you can count on it; it's going to be there, and we use that all all the time, and uh, in in everyday language, even in in English. So, this quote is very important because it brings out the opposition that God has to arrogance, and that God is um, is totally set against against arrogance. He scorns it. Again, these are maybe hyperbole here to express uh, through sort of more extreme term uh, what God is, is saying uh, to those uh, who are arrogant, that, that he opposes them. And the main idea in all of this is simply that, that God rejects the scornful, he he uh, he rejects the arrogant person he is not going to accept him and that's the point of this last line here is not that, that god won't despise this mentality god will accept it but god despises or rejects the mentality of the of the arrogant person so we looked at how important arrogant i mean uh humility is as related to leadership. We talk about Moses. Moses is a primary example in the Old Testament. There are many others that you can look at. If you're talking about the Old Testament, you're teaching Sunday school, you're talking to somebody, you go to Moses in Numbers 12.3. In the New Testament, where do we go? We go to Philippians 2. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. And that's that word again, that we have to keep going back to, Tapani Frasuna, it was not considered a virtue by the Romans, but it's a virtue in the Christian life. Later, Greek culture, in the the post-1st century era, when Christianity has started to change the culture, it becomes a virtue. But it's not a virtue until Christ comes on on the scene. So uh, Paul talks about Uh, that we're to have this mindset, it is a mental attitude, it's a mindset, it's not an emotion, and it's something that's ultimately produced by God the Holy Spirit. And we're told that Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Now I ran across an interesting quote. This is in a book written in the 19th century, late 19th century, by R.C. Trench who was a Greek scholar, and it's an important book to use even today in doing word studies. It's called Synonyms of the New Testament. And so he takes words like tapenai for sune, and praus, another word for humility that's used in the New Testament, and he will have two or three pages discussing where they're similar and where they're different. Why are these different words used at different times? And when he's talking about the Philippians 2 passage, I ran across... This quote, it's a two-slide quote, but I I thought it was a a great insight. He said, now, it may be objected. In other words, he says, now, somebody may object to this. How does this account of Christian tapenai frasune as springing out of and resting on this sense of unworthiness agree with the fact that the sinless Lord... Laid claim to this grace and said, "I am weak and lowly in heart." And he uses that word to So it uses the same same word, "lowly" or um, "lowly in heart" in Matthew eleven twenty nine. And what he's saying is, "Is how can he's sinless? So of course he can't be arrogant. So he addresses this issue and say, say, why why is this important in terms of understanding this in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ?" And he says the answer is that for the sinner, kapanai frasune, or humility, involves the confession of sin. That's Psalm 51. Inasmuch as it involves the confession of his true condition. When we confess sin, we're just acknowledging that we are fallen, totally dependent on the Lord, and we've been rebellious and arrogant. Well, yet, for the unfallen creature, that is Christ, the grace itself as truly exists involving for such the acknowledgement, not of sinfulness, which would be untrue, but of creatureliness, of absolute dependence, of having nothing but receiving all things of God. See, that's the mentality Jesus has in obedience. He's submitting to God. He's receiving all things from Him. He recognizes... Even in the hostility of the trials and the suffering of the cross, he's totally dependent upon God. So in that sense, grace orientation in terms of humility undergirds also the faith rest drill. We can't trust God unless there's some level of a sense that I can't do it. I've got to be totally dependent upon God so this this attitude of humility undergirds so many of the of the spiritual skills then we come to verse 6 where he draws a conclusion he says therefore humble yourselves if this is true and god is opposed to the arrogant, if he is lines himself up there's a there 's a usage in classical Greek of lining yourself up in battle, but that 's how it was used six hundred years before Jesus. Uh, it has that idea of just just being in opposition or arrayed against the arrogant if that 's true and God gives grace to the humble, then humble yourselves, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, and so this again is an imperative. It's an aorist imperative because in an aorist imperative, Paul is saying this needs to be a priority in your life, people. You need to submit to God. You need to humble yourselves and quit being self-assertive and submit to the authority and the plan of God. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that, again, is a, uh, a figure of speech. The hand of God, the arm of God are often used because a hand and an arm are where we exert power. And so this is often a figure of speech to express the omnipotence or the power of God. And so, humility means if humility means that we are to be under the authority and the power of God, letting His power be displayed, then arrogance is where we're asserting our own power and our own ability. Think about that. He, he, uh, arrogance is when we think we can do it. We can handle the problem. We can handle the situation. We can handle it with those really effective tools. Worry, anxiety, anger, uh, all kinds of mental attitude sins. Those are the tools that we use out of arrogance to handle the pressures of life manipulation. So Peter says, "Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Instead of trying to handle it on your own, put yourself under the omnipotence of God when you face the adversity, when you face opposition, when you face those those uh, situations of, of persecution or hostility." Put yourself under the power of God. Mentally put yourself under so that with the result that he will exalt you in due time. He will lift you up in due time. And that's where we have the word hoopsao. Now, I'm pointing this out for a reason. He will lift up. He's the one who exalts us. In arrogance, we're into self-exaltation. But when we submit to God, which seems just to be the opposite, what happens is God is the one then who exalts us. And it may not come in this life. It may come at the judgment seat of Christ. It may come in the rewards that we have that go on into eternity in our position to rule and reign with Christ. This is the exact same word that James uses. And look at the context in James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the sight of God of the lord and he will lift you up that's how it's translated it's the same word there's in in greek oh, it doesn't have up it just says he will exalt you it's the exact same phrase there that you have at the end of uh, first of peter 5 6 so god exalts us how does he do that where's the example The example takes us right back to Philippians chapter 2. That is one of the most significant chapters in the Bible, especially verses 5 through 11. In verse 9 we read, therefore God also, see Jesus submitted himself by being obedient to the cross to the point of death. And then in verse 9 we read, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. It is the reputation. He exalts him. And the word there from exalt is not the word we have here, hoopsa'o. It's a compound word, hooper. Hoopsa'o. Hooper means above and, and, and beyond. So it translates highly exalted. Given him the name which is above every name. And what's the result? That at the name of Jesus. The one that is condemned as a criminal, as a rebel against the Roman Empire is going to be elevated to the right hand of God the Father and then eventually he is going to be given the kingdom that God promised to him and he will be given the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he's elevated above everybody else. He is the prime example of humility and how God exalts. He is, does not exalt himself. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's what's manifested in his ministry at the first advent. Mark ten forty five said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so often the, the mentality of the human being is we come to be served. That's why when the disciples are arguing with with each other, who's going to sit at your right hand and left? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus says, unless you get this mental mental attitude straight and you have the mental attitude of one of these children, which means they have no rights, they have no privileges, uh, they're a nobody as far as society is concerned. Until you get that right, you won't have a place in the kingdom. So they have to learn that. That's the mentality of the king. And it is to be our mentality. He is the ruler of the universe, or will be when he is installed uh, as the king, uh, uh, ruler of the kingdom. And so then we see what God has promised here. God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourselves under his mighty hand. God will exalt you. And the reason I change the order here is because verse 7 is tied to the, the verb here, humble yourselves. So I tried to make it closer to this participle of, by casting. God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourselves under his mighty hand by casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. This is a verse about Humility. This isn't just a verse about, well, I just wake up in the middle of the night and I'm overloaded with all these problems and worries and I need to just cast this on the Lord. I need to pray about these things. It it is the way in which we humble ourselves and submit to his authority and put ourselves under his omnipotence, under his powerful hand. The word there translated casting is a Greek word, epirepto, which is an aorist participle, but it uh, is really a participle of means. Participles can express a n- number of different ideas when they modify a verb, and they modify the the, the command back here to humble yourself. And so, uh, it has that idea of of ca- uh, humbling yourselves by doing something by. Casting your care upon him. The word has the idea of hurling something at somebody, throwing something at some, somebody, uh, placing a heavy object on somebody else, putting it on a mule, putting it on a horse, so that someone else is carrying the weight and we're not carrying carrying the weight. So we are to hurl. I like that idea. It's very picturesque. We are to hurl all of our cares on him because he cares for you. Now, there's a nice... A Translation there because they manage to use care twice, even though the words in the Greek are different, but it picks up the idea. There are worries and our concerns, but God is very concerned about our worries and our concerns. He wants to take care of them, but he wants us to let him take care of them and put ourselves in that position of submission. And most of us spend our lives going through a tug of war with God where we give it to God and take it back, give it to God, take it back, give it to God, take it back. And we can't just relax and say, God, this is your problem, it's not my problem, and just move on and get a good night's sleep and and be relaxed. So the word translated cares is a Greek word, merimna, which which relates to things that you care about, things that you're concerned about, things that you worry about, things that you're anxious about. Remember what Paul says in Philippians uh, 4, 5, and 6. Be anxious for some of those favorite things you hold on to. Is that what it says? Be anxious for nothing, not one thing. Don't be anxious. Anxiety worry in this sense is a sin. It is saying I can control this. And that's just that's arrogance. If you want to guarantee that you're going to lose in this situation as you take the control of God you say I can handle it better than you can handle it. That's arrogance and now God's going to be opposed to you. Do you really want to be in that situation? Just sort of think it through. Uh, logically like that when you start worrying about things at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. So this is that that same idea. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So there in Philippians 4, 5, and 6, we have a tool. You start worrying about something, you submit, you put yourself under the mighty hand of God, and you use prayer as a vehicle for doing that. And the reason we do that is because he cares for us. And this is the uh, word melee in the, in the Greek, which has the idea of, that he's concerned. He's concerned about our concerns. He cares about our cares. He is very interested in our problems and helping us work through them so that we can mature because the problems are used by God to test us, to mature us, and to get us to put our focus on him. This takes us where? James 1, 3 through 5. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance will have its maturing result. So God wants us to go through this adversity so that we will learn to trust him, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, be obedient, cast our care upon him, and he will then uh, work through that whole uh, scenario and situation. What happens when we don't is it leads to all sorts of emotional and mental distress, it can lead to depression, discouragement, it can lead to frustration, it can produce mental attitudes, sins of anger and bitterness. In Luke 21, 34, which is a passage where Jesus is warning the future generation of the of the tribulation about being ready for the return of Jesus. So that's the context. But he says something within that context. In Luke 21, 34, he says, watch yourselves, take heed to yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and cares of life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. Now, he's in the middle of that, he recognizes something that is true, and that is that our hearts that is, our mental attitude, can get weighed down by sin, carousing, drunkenness and cares of life. We worry about things and it weighs down our heart. Another term for that would be depression, discouragement, a sense of 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 being between a rock and a hard place, of not being able to accomplish what we want. So we are to cast our care upon him. Now we come then to the next couple of verses. Now, this is really important. I want to set it up in the next two slides. We'll come back and get into this next time. But again, like we had in the previous section, we have three commands. The three commands are to be sober, and that doesn't mean to avoid alcoholic beverage. Be vigilant, that means to be watchful, and resist him. So here are the three words. NAFO has that idea of being self-controlled, self-controlled, being objective and thinking honestly and realistically about the circumstances. That's what it means. When you are sober, you are not being influenced by drugs or alcohol, you're thinking clearly about the situation. That's what this word really focuses on, is you can think clearly about what's going on in your life, the adversity, the opposition, the hostility, whatever it might be, the, uh, the adversity we face. So we have to be... Uh, uh, um, we have to think realistically. Second, be vigilant. That's Gregorio, And we have to be alert. We have to think... Conscientiously, or excuse me, consciously think through processes of application. And then it says in, the, in your English, because. There's no because in the Greek. It says, be sober, be vigilant, period. Your adversary, the devil, I would translate it, your enemy, the adversary, because d- devil means adversary, diabolos. The devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, the illustration of that passage, and I use this in the Spiritual Warfare book, the illustration of that is Satan's going to and fro on the face of the earth in in the first chapter of Job looking for somebody that he can pick out and make a test case out of and bring all kinds of adversity into his life. See, there's a connection here between Job and testing for uh, maturity's sake and teaching Job humility and what is going on here in the role of the Satan. And it's the same kind of context with James. James is writing to believers to teach them uh, how to handle adversity. And part of what happens in handling it is you have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So Satan is involved in that Uh, suffering. And then the last thing command is in the beginning of verse 9, resist him. That is, resist Satan. We're never told to attack Satan, to go on the offense. It's always defensive. Resist him steadfast in the faith, and that should be translated, be steadfast in your doctrine because you know the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Job is talking about suffering. James is talking about suffering. And Peter is talking about suffering, and all of them end up going to the same basic principles related to humility and dependence upon God and resisting, uh, standing firm against the devil. So we'll come back next time to talk about what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare, Satan, and suffering. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and reflect upon the importance of our mental attitude. We can't generate it on our own. It is the result of our walk by the Spirit, knowing Your Word, letting your, being abs- letting your Word be absorbed into our soul so that we live, breathe, think scripturally. This is a priority. Father, it's hard, it's difficult. We are so busy. We have so many demands. We need to learn self-discipline to redeem the time that it might be used for our spiritual growth and maturity for, uh, that will go on into eternity. We pray that you would challenge us with these things, bring it back to our minds, that we may focus conscientiously on applying these truths. In Christ's name, amen.